Good morning, everybody. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor. Man, what a joy to lead this church. Especially when you get up here and all of a sudden your file's gone. What the heck? Microsoft Word. Come on. There we go. We're back. Um, and that's what we're doing. We're opening God's Word today. There's a passage of Scripture in your bulletin. You can take a look there. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're opening the Bible today because our lives are built on God's promises. In the midst of all of the craziness, our confidence in life comes from God's love and God's support. It's God speaking to us. It's his wisdom and it's God's truth that anchors our life. It changes our perspective. Uh, and the Bible, it, it helps us to experience a real relationship with God as our father and Jesus as our Savior and our friend. Um, the Bible gives us new life in a new year. That's the series that we're in right now as we look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. And I want to do a shout out to the kids like I always do. Good morning here in the lot and also online. If you're in the room or on the couch, uh, kids, we're going to do today what we did last week. I need you to ask your favorite question, which is the question, Why? And I will tell you uh, when to do that. You'll do that with me um, as we look at the passage from the Bible because um, the, the question why helps us walk through this. And so uh, we're going to look first. We discussed uh, verse 1 of Romans 8 a few weeks ago. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation. Oh, this is good news. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in this verse, we hear that God is building a new world through people who are in a relationship with him. And in God's world, you will never experience condemnation no matter what you do. Period. So kids, it's time to ask our question, why? Why? Why is there no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Well, verse 2. We read verse 2. Because for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, there's no condemnation because Jesus sets us free from sin and death in the gospel. So kids, let's ask it again. Why? Verse 3. This is what we're going to look at today. For, because, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the gospel sets us free because in the gospel, God did what we couldn't. That's the title of the message today. It's verse 3, that God did what we couldn't. Now, this verse Verse 3, it is super dense. We said last week that verse 2 tells the story of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This verse, this verse, there is a deep, rich, theological narrative of Jesus' life and death here in these 34 words. There's 34 words here, and some of you, you feel like your mind's going to be blown. Like there is so much in these 34 words that we're going to dive into today. And what Paul says here is he says, God has done, he says, what the law couldn't do, weakened by the flesh. Now, this is a summary of Romans chapter 7. 
This is a summary statement of everything that Paul said in the previous chapter of this letter. And in chapter 7, you might remember, if you weren't here, that's okay. That's where Paul says, God's commandment, God's instruction to us. Talking about the law that was given through Moses. He's saying God's commandment promised life. Like the, the, his, it promised life. God's instruction was designed to give his people life. But in Romans 7, he says it actually proved to bring death. So it was designed to give life to us, but it actually produced death in us. It brought death because of the sin that dwells in us. Because we have sin in us, because we're broken, because we're imperfect, because we have desires in us that we wish weren't there, but they are there. Because of that, even God's law couldn't save us. Even God's instruction couldn't save us because it couldn't conquer the power of sin. And so that's what Paul says in Romans 7, but here he's saying in Romans 8, he's like, wait, wait, look, 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 look. God did what the law couldn't do. So what God's instruction couldn't do, God himself did. That's what he's saying here, that God did what his instruction couldn't do. And the reality here, Romans 7, we couldn't do it. We couldn't conquer our sin. Sin is in us, and we can't overcome it, even with God's instruction. So God did what we couldn't do. How? How did God do what we couldn't do? Well, the rest of verse 3 describes it. The rest of verse 3 says that God did two things. There were two things that God did that we couldn't do, that even his own instruction couldn't do. And these two things are the heart of Christianity. Okay, a lot of times people talk about Christianity, they think about it as a religion. It's one of many religions in the world. You can choose, right? Here's, here's the menu of religions that are offered to you. Pick one, and as long as you pick one and are heartfelt in it, then it's all the same, right? That's what most people think. But when you see what Christianity is, when you understand what's at the heart of Christianity, you think, wait, hold on. This is different. Christianity is different. And so some of you are new to Christianity. You've heard that we talk about forgiveness here. You've heard that we talk about grace, but, but how does it work? How does forgiveness actually work? This verse tells us. Like, why is Jesus different from every other religion? This verse tells us. Why is Jesus necessary for forgiveness with God? This verse tells us. Now, so some of you are new. Still, others of you, you've been around the church. You've been around Christianity for a long time, but you never actually stopped to really understand how and why the gospel works. Like, what is it about Jesus? What is it about what he did that makes such a big difference? Verse 3 answers all of these questions. So, what did God do? What did God do? Two things. First, he came for us. First thing God did that we couldn't do, he came for us. Verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the first thing God did was he came for us. Friends, this is Christmas. This is Christmas. Right? Jesus came for us. He came for us at Christmas time, right? And he came, this verse says, in the likeness of our sinful flesh. So Jesus came, and he didn't come as like 
God among us, though he was God. He came as a human being. He was fully human. Jesus came in our, in a likeness of our sinful flesh. He, was, he struggled. He was tempted in all the ways that we are, and he never sinned. This is the importance of the, what's called the virgin birth, right? That original sin, the guilt of original sin wasn't passed on to Jesus because God was his father. And so Jesus knows exactly what it's like to struggle to love God, to struggle to love other people. He has sympathy for us in our struggles. When we struggle, Jesus is like, man, I know this is difficult. I know how hard this is. He has sympathy for us. He understands us. So at at Christmas, we see that, that God came for us, not to condemn us, but to love us. To love us. And Christmas season is over, right? January comes. We don't celebrate Christmas anymore, not till next year. But Christians never live beyond Christmas. Okay, Christmas is over, but we never live beyond Christmas. We can never forget this because Jesus is God coming for you to show you how much he loves you, to care so much about what you go through and what you struggle with. Like that's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions. No one else is coming for you. No one else. But God came for you in Jesus. This is why Christianity is different, because God came for us. He did more than come. God did a second thing that is in this verse. He came for us. Second, he died for us. He came for us, he died for us. Again, verse three, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and then those last three words, and for sin. And for sin. This means that God sent Jesus to be a sin offering. Okay, this short phrase, for sin, right? You could circle those two words, for sin. This phrase is a quote from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was kind of elaborate, very, very complicated, very, very detailed. Um, When you read it, sometimes you want to fall asleep. Sometimes you feel confused. It's just really, you know, you get to Leviticus and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And you kind of try to wade through it. And then you feel guilty because you're like, I didn't really read it. I kind of sort of skimmed over a bunch of stuff. That's okay. All right. But in the Old Testament sacrificial system, one of the animal sacrifices was called the sin offering. And the sin offering was designed to atone for sin. Now, there's a passage in Leviticus 4 that describes the sin offering. Okay, I'm going to read some of it to you. In Leviticus 4, verses 27 to 32, this is what it says. It says, if anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and then realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him. Okay, so... If you do something wrong, if you sin against God, and you realize that you've sinned against God, or if someone makes known to you that you've sinned against God, right? So if you get it, or if somebody else helps you get it, right? So if you sin, and you realize it, what are you supposed to do? It says, 
he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin, which he has committed. And listen to this. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. So you put your hand on the head of a sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. So the place of the burnt offering was this, uh, was the altar, the altar of burnt offering. It was outside. I mean, I can get into the comment, but so you go to the, the offering place, you put your hand on the sin offering, you kill it. Um, and then verse 30, and the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and then pour out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the, pla- uh, from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven." So that was the, that's the sin offering, okay? So when people sinned, God taught them. God taught them to offer an animal as a substitute for their sin. So they would lay their hand on the head of the sin offering, transferring the guilt of their sin to the animal that was sacrificed. And then the sin offering animal uh, received the punishment of death that justice required for the sin that was committed and in this way, sin was atoned for, and then the offerer's sin was forgiven. Okay, now, for some of us with 21st century minds and living in uh, our day and age, this might sound cruel to the animal. This might sound kind of arbitrary, like that's kind of weird, right? You offer this animal, how does that all work? But I need to let you know that there's something bigger that's happening in the entire animal sacrificial system. Okay? The animal sacrifices themselves. The animals that were sacrificed, they became food. Okay? They, 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 they became food for the people. They became food for the priests. And they actually became food symbolically for God. And so the whole system of animal sacrifices was actually the butchery for the entire nation. Okay? So... What's happening here is that God used the meat-eating food system of the nation to teach his people. And so if you sinned, God then gave you this ceremony, and, this, and your sin can be atoned for through a substitute. And then the death of that substitute gives life. Right? We get this because every time we eat, you know, we eat food that gives us strength physically, right? We live because of the food that we eat, right? And so what God is saying in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, he's saying what you experience physically is also true spiritually. He's saying that the animals as substitute offerings show you that you are offering your own heart and your own life to God in confession and devotion and worship. Like that's what the sacrificial system was. And so if you take another step back and look at the big picture of this, what we can see here is, and this is the God, you need to know that, because again, some people think, oh my goodness, a God that's like bloodthirsty and a God is angry all the time. A God, I mean, that's sort of the image that a lot of people paint from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But that's not anywhere near the message that God gave to his people. Because 
actually the place where these things were sacrificed. The, the tabernacle is where it was, and then it was the temple. <laughs> Y'all, this was like God's seven days a week, 24 hours a day, barbecue. Like that's what this was. God says, look, I want to eat with you. Let's have barbecue. And so God institutes this barbecue system where literally it's burning all the time. There's always sacrifices being offered. Some of these sacrifices are just people saying, God, I love you so much. I give you my life. Some of these things are saying, God, I need peace with you and with other people. God, I just want to thank you for what's happened in my life. And sometimes it's, God, I've sinned against you. And God says, I want you to take all of this and let's eat together. Let's eat good food. Let's enjoy food together because if we eat together, we are family. And with a bunch of the sacrifices that were offered, God is saying, you are forgiven. You are welcome in my presence. You are welcome at my table. So like this is the sacrificial system. I mean, this is amazing, right? And this feast is the sin offering. So this is what was going on for what? I mean, Leviticus probably written around 1100, 1200 BC. So for you know, 1,100 years this is going on in the nation of Israel, right? God is teaching his people, look, sin is real, sin is serious, but I want you to know that I'm your loving heavenly father. So when you deal with your sin, we're going to eat together. When you deal with your sin, I want you to know that you're forgiven. I want you to know I'm taking it away. And so that's what God is communicating to his people over and over and over again for generation to generation to generation to generation. Then Jesus shows up, right? Then when Jesus comes, we learn something new. We learn that all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were foreshadowing something. They were waiting for Jesus to come. They were looking forward to when Jesus would come. And in this one moment in history, when Jesus would come, when God himself would come, and God himself would be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. And you're like, huh? Wait, wait, how did you get that? Well, I got that from reading the Bible. And you have too if you've read John chapter 1, because in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and what did he say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus came to be a sin offering. Jesus died for the sins of the world. And that's why Romans 8 verse 3 says that God did what we couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Saying that God sent Jesus to be a sin offering, to take away our sins, to be a substitution for us. That's what these two words mean in this verse. For sin. And it's kind of crazy, right? You read these two, two words and you're like, for sin. Okay, I kind of get that, all right? But you didn't know that it would open up the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. You didn't know that from these two words you get, whoa, God wants to have a barbecue with us? God loves us and wants to throw a party? Like even in light of our sin? And it's like, yes. Like God takes our sin seriously, but he loves us and he welcomes us. And with Jesus, it's just, it's more of 
the same because remember, like, so Jesus, Jesus is the visible revelation of an invisible God, right? We've never seen God. Nobody has seen God at any time, but Jesus has revealed him to us. And so we see in Jesus what God is like. And so what we see is that God himself came to take the punishment for our sins. And this is what happens. This is what has to happen with forgiveness, right? If you hurt me, I have two choices. I can either make you pay or I can forgive you. But if I forgive you, that means that I don't retaliate, right? I don't make you pay, which means that I have to pay. Like the suffering that I've experienced, I just have to like sit in it. I've got to own it. I've got to just, like I can't retaliate. I can't get you back, right, for what you've done. I'm not going to make you suffer for what you've done. And so this verse shows us that God himself comes to be an offering for sin, to be a substitute. He pays so that we don't have to. This is why we get so excited about the gospel here at Harbor. This is why we say our first value as a church is that we are gospel-centered because we believe in a God who has done this. We believe in a God who loves us so much that he died for our sins to set us free. And this is why forgiveness is real. It's because Jesus died the death that we deserve. Jesus took the pain and the penalty for our sins. And it's like, man, okay, we're done, right? Well, we're not done. We're not done because he says more here. There's like more in this verse. It's crazy. Like, what is this? What is the impact of all this? Like, what does Paul say that this means for us? Well, the end of verse three, there's one last phrase. It says that because of this, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, the end of verse three, he condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. God condemned sin in the flesh, right? And, and this, friends, like this is the answer. This is the solution to the problem in Romans 7. In Romans 7, we talked about it. You can, like the last month of last year when we went through it during Advent, we went through the problem, like that, that we're not okay, but God says that's okay, <laughs> Like, we're not what we should be. And God says, I still love you. And we're like, yeah, you know, Paul is so clear and raw and honest about his struggle and his sin. And he's like, I do what I don't want to do. I wish I didn't do this. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul says the problem is sin. Like, sin is the problem. It's sin in me. And Romans 7 teaches us that, that sin is the culprit. It's kind of nuts because the way Paul talks, you're kind of like, wow, he's not taking blame for what he's done. But Paul makes it clear that sin is the problem. So be with me here. Like, stick with me here. Think with me. We think of sin as the stuff that we do that aren't like Jesus. We think of sin as the things that we do that God wishes we wouldn't do or tells us not to do, right? But it's more than that. It's more than that. In this letter, if you read Romans chapters 3 through 8, mostly chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, um, Paul describes sin not just as the stuff that we do. Um, gosh, if you want to chase this down, one way to do this, this isn't perfect, but if you read through Romans, every time Paul talks about sins, plural, sins, right? 
he's normally talking about the stuff that we do. But when he talks about sin singular, he's talking about sin as this personified power. It's like a person that he describes. And it's mostly in Romans 5 through 8. Because in Romans 5, it says that sin entered the world. And then sin became enthroned as king over the old world. And then Romans 6 says that when we sin, we actually enthrone sin in our lives. And it makes sin more powerful in our lives. And it takes more and more control over us. Just one verse, Romans 6 verse 16 says this. It says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And what Paul's saying here, he's like, you know, you think you can sin without consequence? Paul's like, no, actually, don't you realize that if you obey sin, if you start giving in to sin, sin will become a master. You'll become enslaved to it. This is just like addictive behavior. This is how it works. If you keep doing something, you become addicted to it. You can become addicted to sin. And so the sin that entered into the world, it brought death, and we enthroned that. And so sin is the culprit that Paul blames in Romans 7. You can go back and read it again. I can read you just seven, Romans 7, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he says this, verse 20, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And you might read that and be like, well, Paul's just making excuses. It's not my fault, like the devil made me do it, which, I mean, the point here that he's saying is that sin is the problem. And so, in the gospel, Jesus condemned sin. The sin that lives in your flesh and in mine, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. So the very problem that you and I have, Jesus took care of it by condemning sin. And so God sees that sin is ruining his world, is ruining people, it's vandalizing things, it's destroying relationships, it's causing political and racial unrest, it's causing everything that's wrong in our world. It's sin's fault. And so condemnation is justice for sin. Condemnation is what sin deserves, and so God condemns sin on the cross. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it gives us a choice. Right? If we're going to be honest, we have to admit that sin is in all of us. And sin will be condemned because justice demands that sin be punished. It is destroying the world that God has made. And if we hold on to our sin, then we will be condemned along with it. Right? If sin and us stay together, then we will get swept up in the flood of condemnation that will go against our sin. But the gospel says that God has done something in Jesus. The gospel says that we can be separated from our sin. Jesus came so that God could condemn sin in the flesh without condemning you. See this? You follow this? I mean, like, it's, there's some brilliant logic here if you follow what's happening. And so, if you believe in Jesus... The gospel says that your sin is condemned 
on the cross with Jesus. What this means is that God is saying, look, I suffered, I suffered, I suffered to separate you from your sin. And if you believe and if you follow Jesus, he is a sin offering and he will pay for your sins. And this will separate you from your sins so that you don't have to pay. But that up you. And this is where God is in ultimate authority over all things. And yet, as the ultimate authority, God will not violate your agency. God honors you too much to force you to do something. So he says in the gospel, you can be set free from your sin. He says, I have done everything that is necessary. If you put your faith in Jesus, then I will condemn your sin on the cross of him and you will be forgiven. Now, if you don't, if you don't accept Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, then you reject God's offer and you stay with your sin. And if you do that, you'll be condemned along with it. But why would you do that? Why would anyone do that? When God himself says, I have come and I have died, why would you reject him? Jesus wants to draw you near into a relationship where your sin is removed and you can know the love. So, some actions that I want you to take this week, some things that we should do in light of what God has done. First thing, I want to call you all to commit to following Jesus. And why wouldn't you want to? What else are you doing with your life that's more important than this? Like what else in your life is more important than knowing the God of the universe who bridged heaven and earth and came for you and died for you? He died to condemn sin. Let it be your sins. Why would you want to keep your sins when Jesus offers you freedom? Like this is what it means to become a Christian, right? Whatever you think it means, it means this. It means committing to following the one who followed your sin to come and to die on a cross. You become a Christian. You can become one today just by saying, Jesus, I give you my life. Please forgive my sins. Thank you for condemning them in your death. Thank you that I am forgiven and free. And that's it. If you don't remember all that, just say, Jesus, I give you my life, and then come talk to us. Come talk to me afterwards. Talk to somebody here in the church. We can help you begin to walk as a Christian. And then, Christians, I know that very often, if you're like me, sin sometimes weighs us down. Sin sometimes gets the better of us. You too might come back to him. He still loves you. Again, commit, recommit to following Jesus. So first, commit yourself to following Jesus. Second, bring your sins to Jesus. I want you to spend time with the one who condemned your sin. Like spend time with the one. Don't let your sins keep you away from him. Right? Jesus wants to spend time with you even if you're weighed down, especially if you're weighed down. 
I lost connection with someone who stopped showing up and I sent them emails like, hey, how you doing? Never got a response, never got a response. And I finally sent them an email saying, look, I hope you're doing okay. I would love to hang out. I'd love to see you. I'd love to reconnect. If you're not doing okay, I would love even more to reconnect. He responded. Jesus wants you to know that if you don't belong back with him, he wants you even more. He wants to spend time with you even if you're weighed down by your sins because he wants to tell you all over again, I know what you've done and I still love you. I know what you've done. I'm not going anywhere. I condemned that sin too every single time you've committed it. I love you not because you're good enough. I loved you when you were not good and I still love you now. So bring your sins to Jesus. Confess your specific sins and let God's word give you assurance. Um, one of the things I love to do with these three verses is I love to kind of read them backwards, right? It's kind of like, you know, the Mary Poppins song, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, right? I think it's like the second verse where she's like, you know, you could say it backwards, you know, docious, sally, expiistic, fragile, rupus, right? Right, that's the, that's the song, right? You can say these verses backwards and it's actually kind of even more exciting because instead of Paul saying stuff and explaining it, he like starts with the base explanation and then he works backwards to the final conclusion, right? So if you start with verse three, like verse three is the why to verse two, verse two is the why to verse one. And so it's because Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, that's verse three. Because he came and he died, that's verse three. You are set free from the law of sin and death. That's verse two, right? The gospel of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin and death. And therefore, there's no condemnation for you. So at any moment, no matter how much you've done, no matter how much you haven't done that you should have done, you can say Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. Therefore, I've been set free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there's now no condemnation. That means Jesus is happy to see me. And so you can read these verses backwards and, and know that this is the meaning of his death. His death wasn't just, this is how much I love you. It wasn't just like, let me show you this extraordinary you know, demonstration of sacrificial love. It was like, no, 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 I'm saving you so that sin never has to keep you away from me. So bring your sins to Jesus and walk them through these three verses and let the assurance of God's love wash continually over you. It's like the ocean. It's like the waves, right? No matter what kind of thing you build with the sand, the waves of God's love forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. All right, then third, I want you to keep writing out Romans 8, one or one verse at a time. So just keep writing out this whole chapter, one verse at a time. And, and I got to tell you, I did this this week, and verse 3, like I made a connection that I have never, ever understood before. Like I didn't understand that condemning sin in the flesh in verse 3 was solving the problem of Romans 7. 
like I kind of known conceptually that Romans 8 solves Romans 7. Like I got that a little bit, but like I never understood that what was happening was that Jesus was condemning sin in the flesh because that was the problem of Romans 7. Like the problem that we all have is that sin is in us. It's in our flesh and nothing gets it out, right? Nothing, we can't deal with it. Even God's instruction doesn't get it out. But Jesus on the cross gets it out. Jesus on the cross dealt with it by taking it and dying for it so we can go free. So I want you this week to continue. Take some verses every day if you can, a few days if you, you know, if you can. Just like take these verses and write out. Just write them out, just like they're written in the Bible. And then write out your version of it. Like how would you explain this to somebody? And, and watch these verses come alive for you. They'll give you life. They'll give you new life. And so, man, all of this is telling us that the world that God is building, this new world that God is building, it's not ruled by sin. Sin has been condemned and conquered in Jesus, and he now offers you freedom. Man, won't you receive it and live in it? Let's pray. God, thank you for doing what we couldn't do. Thank you for coming and for dying, for taking the power and the, the penalty of our sin and condemning it. Jesus, we're sorry for our sin, and yet we glory that you have come to do what we couldn't do. We want to follow you wherever you lead. Thank you for the rock-solid reality that in your death, we find life. In your death, we find an answer to the sin that so easily entangles us. Set us free and help us to see your love and to experience your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.